who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches heart and mind, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, let there be light. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen vessels are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him indeed. Let us pray together and ask him for his help during this time. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled by this word. It is a sobering word to hear. Lord, this is a sobering text, and so this is going to be a sobering sermon. And so we pray that you would please soften our hearts to your truth now. Lord, all of us in this room are convicted by this word or convicted by uh, what your standard of holiness, your standard of righteousness and what is good, what is lovely, what is pure, what is excellent, what is true. Lord, uh, we, we pray that you would humble us. We pray that you would work in our hearts uh, repentance, repentance in the areas of sexuality. Uh, in the areas of idolatry, Lord. We pray that you would please be merciful upon us. We do, not, we do not pretend to think that we deserve your mercy, that we deserve your grace, but we plead it on behalf of the one whose blood was shed on, on our, uh, in our place, Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask that you would please be gracious to your people now and work in our hearts, humble our hearts, Lord, and grant us faith, faith to trust in this and faith to forsake our sin. We also pray for the little theologians who will be listening. We pray for them, Lord, that you would give them ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to receive your word. Lord, help us to receive your implanted word with meekness. Uh, Lord, that it is able to save our souls and that it is sweeter than the honeycomb, uh, even the, the richest honey. And so we pray that it would be rich to us now. We come to this place in need of spiritual food, in need of spiritual life, and we pray that you would give it to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the city was insignificant with the grander and more important cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum close by. The attraction to Ephesus was its temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The attraction to Smyrna was for its devotion to Rome and Caesar. The attraction to Pergamum was for its pagan healing remedies that were there in the temples and its large library that was second only to Alexandria and Egypt. The attraction to Thyatira was the color purple, a purple dye to be exact. 
the dye was used to stain fabrics. And that dye was made from the rarest of mollusks found hundreds of miles away in the Mediterranean Sea. And as a result, was extremely valuable in the ancient world. The dye then was used in making fine, rare clothing. Clothing that was coveted by the wealthy and by royalty. As a result, Thyatira became known for its textile industry. There was much money to be made in the Thyatiran commerce centered around its production of purple goods. Thyatira, it would seem, was blue-collar through and through. One of those Thyatirans who excelled in the production and selling of such goods was a woman by the name of Lydia. She was evidently very wealthy, as we know that she had a home and she had a full household in the affluent and much-coveted city of Philippi. Residence in Philippi was chiefly reserved for only those who could afford it, Roman royalty and celebrity. The fact that Lydia lived there speaks to how, success, to how successful she was in her trade of purple goods, a trade that she learned in her hometown of Thyatira. All of that was at work, that fateful, providential Sabbath day, when Lydia journeyed outside the city gates of Philippi to gather with the Jews who would come together to worship. Jews were not welcome to worship inside the gates of Philippi, so they would gather outside the city, down by the river. And so Lydia went there that Sabbath day to join with the Jews, to pray, to worship. And instead, what she heard would not only change her life, but it would change her hometown of Thyatira as well. The book of Acts tells us that Lydia was the first recorded convert in Europe. And though it never mentions her traveling back to Thyatira, church tradition speaks of her playing an instrumental role in the church that arose there in the first century. A church that we now find Jesus himself addressing through the Apostle John here in Revelation 2. What's interesting to note is how we know virtually nothing of this church, except for what is revealed here in the longest address that Jesus gives, which cannot be by accident, by the way. He saves his strongest, his hardest word for the church that finds itself on the verge of collapsing from within. A dire predicament that, as we'll see today, did not happen overnight, but was gradual as they began to find compromising on the truth more and more appealing. And this strong word really is the point of what Jesus wants us, his church, to hear as well. He wants us to hear it because, as he says in verse 23, nothing escapes his oversight or awareness. We may think that we are concealing, but Jesus, friends, is revealing. He's revealing that he knows. He knows what's going on inside you, and he knows what's going on inside me. He knows what's going on inside your home and inside my home. He knows what's going on inside Westside Church and those who are members here. All the churches will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart, and I will give to you according to your works, he says. Now we come to the assessment of Thyatira, which we know is also meant to be for us as well. Part of hearing and responding to our Lord's word to his church. That is what we have here in Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Now, little theologians, today, kids, I want you to draw a rod of iron. A, iron uh, a, a rod of iron is kind of like a sepulcher or 
a baton, kids, and I want you to draw, draw a bright morning star. These are some of the imageries that Jesus uses to represent his authority, kids. So I want you to draw a rod of iron and a bright morning star. And then, kids, here's the question for you. What does Jesus call on his church in Thyatira to do? What does he call on them to do? Now, look with me first at Christ's description in verse 18. Christ's description in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are, are like burnished bronze. We've noted that in each of the seven letters, Jesus' description of himself is different, corresponding to the condition of the particular church. You remember that to Ephesus, he wanted to remind him that he was in their midst and calling them to, and calling them to remember their devotion to him. To Smyrna, he wanted to remind them that he had overcome death because they were going to be facing certain death in terms of persecution. Last week, we saw that to Pergamum, Jesus reminded them of his power and his authority in warning them of pending judgment if they failed to heed his words. Now we come to Thyatira, and it has gone a step further here in Jesus' description. Not only is he the one that has the sword, the two-edged sword, but here we see the description uh, is of Jesus' supremacy, Jesus' holiness, the description that he uses here. The Son of God, eyes of fire, feet of burnished bronze. And that corresponds here, friends, to the severity of the problem that was happening in the church. This stunning description of Jesus, the Son of God, for eyes, flame of fire, feet of burnished bronze. This is hearkening back not only to chapter 1, you remember the prologue there, but also to the Old Testament. Also to Psalm 2, which we heard read. Also to the prophet Daniel. The point that Jesus is saying here is that this is who Jesus is, friends. This is who he is. He is the glorious son of God. From everlasting to everlasting. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega. This is the real Jesus, brothers and sisters. And that you and I, we need to see him as he truly is. As he truly is. Not who we want him to be. Not the Jesus of our imagination. Not the Jesus of popular culture. But Jesus as he has revealed himself to be in his word. Why? Why, what, my, why must we see him as he truly is? Because only then, friends, will we understand why Jesus has the right to tell you and I how to live. Why he has the authority to tell us this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is evil, this is sin, this is wickedness. Only if we see Jesus as he really is will we understand that he has the right to call out sin and to call out our sin. To call out, to call out even our secret sin. Even our most hidden and shameful sin. Now, why does Jesus do that, friends? Because that is the pathway to grace and repentance. That is the pathway to healing, without which there is no forgiveness. There is no freedom or redemption. There is no good news, no gospel. Because as Paul says in Romans 2, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. 
And if we don't have one who is the authority, who has the power to call out that evil, and at the same time to offer grace and forgiveness and redemption and forgiveness and transformation from that evil, then we're sunk. We're sunk. So do you, do you know the real Jesus? Do you see him as he truly is? Because this is the normal human condition in a fallen world, friends. We cannot escape it. We cannot escape that there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. We cannot escape it, but we can be saved through that, through that, by hearing and responding to the voice that took it upon himself to personally intervene on our behalf, to intervene. He stepped into this world and he overcame it. He overcame it. So keep that in mind as we hear this hard word from Jesus. Jesus means to lead you and I to repentance. He means to lead you and I to redemption. Not to leave us in our condemned state, but so that we see, we see the beauty and the glory of who he is. The one who has overcome Satan, sin, and death. So see the real Jesus, friends. The unique, one-of-a-kind son of God who bridges the gap between God and man. Between the holy one and the unholy. Between the infinite and the finite. He comes. This one comes to you and I now. Through the church in Thyatira to address, to address his church. And he starts, by, uh, much like the previous three addresses, he starts by commending them. He says there in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. From the outside, on the surface, things look good. They are enduring in their witness to the outside world. Unlike Ephesus, their last works were greater than their first, meaning that love, faith, and service were evident. But on the inside, within the congregation, things were deceptively twisted. Look at the confrontation in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food and sacrifice to idols. Jezebel. Jezebel. Much like Balaam last week, Jezebel is representative of the type of teaching and the type of influence that was happening in the church. You might recall from your Old Testament knowledge that Jezebel historically was married to King Ahab in the northern kingdom of Israel. She was the daughter of the pagan king of Sidon. And Jezebel, friends, was a high priestess in the worship of Baal, which means that she was essentially a pagan witch. That's who Jezebel was. You can imagine how low a point this was for the people of God. It had just been a few, a few centuries earlier that the glory of the United Kingdom of Israel under David and then under Solomon had been there. Now those days were past. The kingdom was divided. And in the north, Israel had wicked king after wicked king. And they all culminated with, with Ahab because Ahab married a pagan witch, essentially. And when he married her, the worship of Baal and immorality proliferated throughout the land. And it, went, it got to the point that it looked so bleak, it looked so bleak that the prophet Elijah, you remember Elijah, Elijah who had seen the mighty work of, of the Lord, 
causing famine across the land for three years. And then at Elijah's word, rain came back down after that. God destroyed the, the altar of the false prophets of Baal at Elijah's word. Elijah saw all of this. And even after that, things were so perverse, things were so wicked in the land, that when Jezebel threatened to kill him, the prophet exclaimed, Take my life, Lord. I alone am left. I alone am left. Jezebel had complete control and had corrupted the land. With that in mind, we now see just how bad things must have been in Thyatira. There was a woman who, like Jezebel, took the place of spiritual authority and was teaching. And what is the other word that Jesus uses there? She was seducing the people. Seducing the people. Now get this, the word for seducing here means to twist one's thoughts, to make what is proper improper, to take the truth and twist it, to make the lie fit within it so that it is no longer the truth. And the way that this woman was doing it there in the church was with sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. We mentioned last week that this was the attempt this was the attempt. What, what was happening? This was the attempt to syncretize the Christian faith with the paganism of the culture. Little theologians, kids, syncretism is to combine, to combine Christianity with outside influence, to combine Christianity with that which is counter to Christianity, essentially, in the culture. And Paul, Paul is commenting on this in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's talking to the church in Corinth. They, are, they too are engaging in sexual immorality, love feast at the temples. And Paul says, you cannot, you cannot partner, you cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons, he says there in 1 Corinthians 10. That's how serious it was. Because at these pagan feasts, at these temple feasts, this included every sexual vice you can imagine. And it included these sexual acts as acts of worship in the temple. And I, what I want us to, to see today, friends, is that this has always been the temptation for the church. Syncretism. To compromise just a little. To make the church, to make the gospel, to make Jesus, whatever Christian teaching it may be, to make it a little bit more palatable to the unbelieving world. Syncretism is always a threat. Because of its subtlety. It presents itself in the name of tolerance and acceptance. Now, I want you to listen to me carefully here, what I say. It presents itself in the name of tolerance and acceptance. To the exclusion of biblical authority and truth. Should we be tolerant? Should we be accepting? Yes, of course we should be. Granted that we are tolerant and accepting of things that are not in conflict with what Scripture clearly teaches. Yes, we welcome sinners. Yes, we love people. Of course we do. But the teaching, the teaching, the doctrine is what we hold the line on, church. Let's take the example that Jesus gives here of sexual immorality. I want you to know this about what Jesus says here. This is the broadest term he could have used to incorporate all forms of sexual sin. All forms of sexual sin outside of the divinely ordained relationship of a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. It's the Greek word porneia, which means all sexual act activity outside of covenant marriage. 
between a man and a woman. As a matter of fact, Paul elaborates on this very issue in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Did you get that? The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What Paul's saying there, friends, is that what's critical to a right understanding of the Bible's view on sexuality is that the point of reference on your sexuality and on my sexuality isn't our desires, but it's the Lord and his desire for us, which of course is holiness. That is, to view sexuality, including my own, must start with God and his revelation, what he says about it, not the other way around. That's where we begin when we answer, when we're approaching the issue, the sensitive subject of sexuality. We begin with God and his word, not with my desires, and then try to make God and his word fit those desires. This is where syncretism always goes wrong. Wanting to conform the church to the culture rather than conforming the church to Christ. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the rubber meets the road in terms of faith and practice. Because the pressure, friends, to compromise and tolerate is ever-present for us. And if we're honest, it seems like the right course of action in 2021, with all the social pressure, would be to do what? To compromise just a little. To tolerate just a little bit more than what the church historically has done. And if, and if all we had, friends, were the commands that said, don't do this, don't do that, it would be easy to say, it would be easy to go along with the, the popular idea that that was then, this is now. And for many in the church, that is their understanding, particularly as it applies to sexuality. That was then, this is now. But here's what I want you to know. That's not all Jesus says about it. Jesus isn't saying, don't do that. Don't do this. That's not what he's saying. Not only does Jesus say that this is a perverse teaching, but he calls it in verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. What does he say? The deep things of Satan. Mm. Church, that is the severity of syncretism that was happening in Thyatira. The combining of the church with the sexual immorality and the idolatry of the surrounding culture. And before we say this, yeah, but where are all the pagan love feasts today? Keep in mind that the issues here, the issues here are the worship and serving of the creation rather than the creator. Did you realize that when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to idolatry? That according to Paul in Romans 1, one of the clearest expressions... One of the clearest expressions of worshiping creation rather than the creator is sexual sin and perversion. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. Here's what he says. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, here it is, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, or the, worshiped and served the creature, excuse me, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. And here's what I want you to understand. Sexual expression is a spiritual act. Did you know that? Sexual expression is a spiritual act. That's, that's the argument that Paul is making there. Because they exchanged the truth for a lie and worshipped and served the creation rather than the, the, rather than the creator. God gave them over to, a, to the lust of their hearts, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Because they worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. In other words, sexuality, friends, cannot be rightly understood apart from understanding the one who created it in the first place by acknowledging the creator, by worshiping the creator. Paul says there in Romans 1 that we naturally suppress the truth, that in our sin we naturally suppress the truth about God. We exchange the truth for a lie that we, so that we can worship and serve created things and that we believe the lie that we can find fulfillment in those things. And that sort of thinking had contaminated the church in Thyatira. They were corrupted, and judgment was imminent. Look at verse 21 and following. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about this Jezebel in the church. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So even to this false teacher, even to this one who is corrupting the the church, the people of God there. The loving kindness, the patience of our Lord is on display. And yet the hardness and impenitence of the sinner is equally on display. And here's what we need to understand about that. This gives us insight into the nefarious, the nefarious nature of sin, but specifically sexual sin. Sexual sin. And how it seduces and how it enslaves Proverbs 6 talks about, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? That is what the father tells the son in Proverbs 6. So is the one who engages in sexual immorality. None who engage go unpunished. The father teaching his son there in Proverbs. But all the while, the call, the call to discern the truth and to repent of error is there. It was there for this Jezebel in this church. It is there, it is here today for you and I as well. To discern the truth, the truth of what God has revealed, dear sinner, and to repent, to repent of your sin. What incredible mercy, what unbelievable patience God has toward us. Christ continues to call sinners to repentance, especially those in the church Those who are exposed, you are exposed to the truth. You are exposed to the call to repentance, to hear the call to forsake sin, and to embrace Jesus by faith, to embrace the way of the cross. You are are called to that. Because Jesus alone, Jesus alone stood in our place, and he was condemned. Jesus alone hung in our place as the one who was cursed by God. And he was forsaken. And you know what he was forsaken as? He was forsaken as the most vile, hideous, disgusting sinner before the judgment of God. He alone died in our place as he was cut off out of the land of the living. 
taking all of our sexual perversion, all of the gluttonous idolatry, all of the shame. Jesus took it. He took it. And that is why he can say to you and I, repent, repent. You who would enter here, abandon all hope. But this woman and her followers refused to do so. And so what would happen? What was going to happen? Check me. Check me. Absolutely shocking words, Jesus says. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of, their, of, their, of her works. There again is the invitation to flee, to turn and be saved. And I will strike her children dead, he says. And all the churches will know. They will know my power. They will know my purity. They will know my holiness. I am the one who searches the mind and the heart. This is Jesus coming in judgment, friends. He's not playing games here. This is the Son of God with eyes blazing, his penetrating vision. He knows exactly what is happening in his church. And his feet that are shimmering, that are shimmering, that is the purging power that he has. And that comes directly from Daniel chapter 2. His, his feet of burnished bronze are in contrast to the clay feet of the earthly kingdoms in Daniel. Jesus is coming to bring judgment on those in the church who are compromised. And the language here is absolutely shocking. I will throw her onto a sickbed. I will throw her into great tribulation. I will strike down. I will kill her children. These are not the typical words we think about when we think about our Lord. But perhaps they need to be. At least when it comes to thinking about our sin, when it comes to thinking about the temptation to compromise his holiness, if we are tempted to compromise, if we're tempted to tolerate those who do compromise on issues that Jesus is clear about, heed the word to the church in Thyatira. And yet, he is altogether, he is altogether holy, he is altogether pure, and he is altogether gracious, friends. 